Hello, and welcome to Finding Drishti Podcast. My name is Terry Cohen. Today's episode is the second of a four-part workshop series that took place at Austin Bouldering Project. These explore the first two limbs of Patanjali's eight-limb yogic path. This recording includes discussion, meditation, pranayama, and a gentle asana practice. You may want a bolster or blanket for comfortable seating, and if available, two blocks. Who's here last week? All right, so just a quick review for those of you guys who missed last week. So this whole series that I'm doing uh, is covering the two first limbs of uh, Patanjali's eight-limb path of yogic practice. And the first limb is yamas, which is what we're still covering. So yamas are restraints, things to try not to do. Uh, The second limb are niyamas, and those are observations to make. And so last week we covered... Uh, the first three, which are ahimsa, non-violence, asteya, non-stealing, and satya, non-lying. So those, those always seem like the most obvious things of like how not to be a jerk in life, right? Don't hurt people uh, or yourself, and don't steal from other people or from yourself, and uh, try to be as truthful as you can. So the next two yamas that we're going to cover... Brahmacharya, and I'll spell that for you, B-R-A-H-M-A-C-H-A-R-Y-A. Lots of A's. So brahmacharya is non-excess. So we'll get a little bit more into that in a moment. The second one uh, that we're covering is aparigraha, and I'll spell that for you too. A-P-A-R-I-G-R-A-H-A. Aparigraha. So parigraha is non-possessiveness or non-hoarding. So these two yamas are like the most interesting to me and probably the the ones I need to work on the most. (laughs) All right, so I'll give you a couple definitions here and then we'll kind of start getting into some breath practice and to some seated meditation. So brahmacharya, uh, in the most traditional sense that it's discussed within... um, the Yoga Sutras, talks about celibacy, which immediately is like, what? Why are we talking about that for yoga, right? Okay, so uh, that's just one part of brahmacharya is to restrain yourself from like all the lust and all the whatever. So that's really meant for like the most extreme end, right? Like you think of like monks and, uh, you know, people who kind of hide away in a cave, right? Like that's the most extreme end of trying to be spiritual is that you give up pleasures of the skin, however you want to define that, right? Another way to look at it, though, is moderation of things that are possibly addictive pleasures, okay? So I'm going to give you a little definition from uh, this book, Meditations from the Mat. This, to me, resonates more than to say, like, don't ever have sex. My husband would not be happy if I came back home and said that yoga told me that I need to practice brahmacharya and we are never doing it again, right? Uh, That wouldn't fly for him or for me, let's be honest. Okay, so brahmacharya. Brahmacharya is the feeling of freedom that comes when we have let an addictive craving go, when we can eat to live, not live to eat, when we can work to live, not live to work, when we stand firmly and with ease of heart in the postures of life. That feels better, right? Okay, all right. 
So the idea of Pramacharya is that we tend to, when there's something that is becoming like a strong desire, whether that's sex or video games or shopping or candy or whatever it is that we tend to do in our lives that we do too much of, it expends energy that could be better used elsewhere. So brahmacharya to me is much more about moderation, not having excess or addictive behaviors, of looking at how you're spending your energy in life and trying to make it more balanced. It's not saying never eat candy. You can have candy, uh, but it's also like not giving you permission to do the other extreme of only eating candy, right? There's a middle ground, which is most of yoga is trying to tell us there are these two ends that we tend to gravitate to, either too much or too little. Can we find this middle place? So brahmacharya is one that really asks you to examine what is happening in your life. Right? What are these behaviors that might become uh, cyclical, that cause your suffering, that cause pain or anguish or unhealthy habits or whatever those things are that tend to push you to an extreme? Can we bring it back? And instead of doing the excess version of something, can we be more in the middle? Enjoy it for the time that you have it, but not spend so much energy that you're, you're draining yourself. Okay. So there's kind of the, our better version of brahmacharya that applies more to modern life. We don't have to hide away in a cave like the ancient yogis that, who studied text and like grew their beards out and like didn't eat anything. Nobody's saying you have to be an extreme. We want to be more in the middle. That's really where we want to be. So a parigraha, this non-possessiveness, this non-hoarding, could be physical, right? You've seen the show Hoarders, or at least heard of the show Hoarders. Um, I, I always tell the story that my grandmother was a hoarder. Uh, she grew up in a time where they had nothing uh, when she was in Taiwan. And she was asked to wake up at like 4 a.m. to kindle the fire to start boiling up water so that they would have hot water for the day, which to me, I was like, what? They, di they didn't have like gas in Taiwan? I mean, it was like in the 19... 30s, right? And so I, to me, I forget because I'm American. I'm like, oh, yeah, we have all the luxuries of the world in other places where they don't have as much. So she grew up in, in poverty and having to do all this hard work that by the time that after World War II and they got to a much better place and then eventually my uh, dad immigrated everybody over to the U.S., um, my grandma had this habit because she grew up with so little that she held on to everything. I mean, like empty glass jars. Uh, she would take those twisty ties, like from bread, bread bags, and she would like smooth them back out and like sort them by color and then bundle them up. She would use like paper towels, and when she was done, she'd lay them flat and let them dry. Um, so when she, when she passed away a couple years ago, we had to clean out the kitchen. And I was like, Grandma was a hoarder. She was an organized hoarder. It didn't like become like piles of paper and like lost food wrappers, right, that you see on the TV show. But the idea that she held on to so much. And I always laugh, well, my husband laughs at me because I have hoarder tendencies. I want to hold on to stuff, whether it's for sentimental reasons or, or because I feel like, well, it'll be worth something later or I can use that later. And so what a parigraha asks of us is that we only take what we need for the time that we need it. 
So I'll share another quote with you because then there's another interesting version of this. Uh, let's see if I can find it. Okay, it says, you're not a hoarder, you are a non-relinquisher. At first glance, a parigraha sounds like a problem of the shop till you drop club. But upon further examination, I realize that my whole apartment is one big aparigraha violation. I am not a big spender, and I hardly ever shop. So how can this be? I don't want more. I just don't want to lose what I already have. I might miss that shirt I haven't worn in years. I might want to read that book again someday. <laughs> that chip bowl is still perfectly usable. It's not that I am a hoarder. I am a non-relinquisher. I don't want to grieve the loss of anything. A parigraha is an opportunity to learn how to say goodbye. Whew, I got to this and I was like, this is me. This is me, right? Closet full of stuff that I probably should have donated at some point. Uh, so a few weeks ago, my husband did a painting job. So I took the kids to my mom's. And so he emptied the shelves in the living room so that he could move furniture. And he scraped the popcorn ceiling off and he did painting. And it's been a few weeks since that project. We still haven't put things back on the shelf. And we haven't missed those things. And I'm kind of feeling like a, par a parigraha is telling me something. The th things that I've been keeping on that shelf that have just been collecting dust that my husband gets mad at me for because he thinks it's clutter, I don't really need it. So my project next is going to be to go through those things that are just sitting in boxes and decide whether they really belong back on the shelf. So it's moments like these that start to bubble up in our everyday life where you go, I'm holding on to too much. So there's the physical holding of things, right, your possessions. And then there's kind of those emotional holdings on. And there's also ideological holdings on. And even within our yoga practice, we tend to hold on to like yoga postures, right? So when you're young and you start your yoga practice, you go, ooh, I can do my vinyasa one like a rock star. Collect that. Ooh, my vinyasa two is looking good. Or my, sorry, my warrior one, warrior two, warrior three. You start to like collect postures. You go, oh, I can start to do arm balances. Yes, crow. That one's in the bag. All right, I'm doing this ekapata business. And every time I go to a workshop with master teachers who are now in their 50s, 60s, 70s, they're like, your knees are going to give out at one point. Right? Your, your back is going to slow you down as you age. And suddenly, this hoarding aspect of collecting poses that you're so attached to, that you feel so bad about when you can't do it anymore, for whatever reason, age, injury, illness, that we start to, that's the cause of our suffering. So I'll give you another example. When I was pregnant with my first kiddo. I was doing Ashtanga pretty regularly, and I had finally like achieved certain things, right? I've got my headstand, yes, and you know, I'm finally getting those big back bends. And then when you're pregnant, you can't do certain things. You can't do twists, and you can't overstretch, and you know, it's, it's not ideal to be upside down for long periods of time or on your back long periods of time. And I started feeling like this isn't fair. I've been holding on to these poses. I've finally been collecting them. And because of my stupid baby telling me I can't go upside down and do a headstand at 37 weeks, I had like a tantrum about it. And then I was like, Apari Graha is telling me something, <laughs> telling me to let go, that I don't need to hold on to it right now. 
that maybe it'll come again later, that it's not something that I need to hold onto so tightly and hoard and like my precious and like never let go, that things are temporary, that they come in for a reason at the time that they do and then they're going to pass and maybe they'll come back again later when you need it. There's no reason to cling and to grasp and to hold. So that's kind of where that's going with that. So we're going to play with these two yamas today in a more like ritualistic kind of letting go. And so we're going to start with some seated meditation and we're going to do a few rounds here. So what I'm going to offer you is a few different ways to set up seated meditation. So you have the most simple, which is a cross-legged seat and you can do it on a block, you can do it on a bolster, you can fold up a blanket. You can take that into a half lotus or a full lotus if you want. If you're using something to lift your hips, you want your hips to be either level with your knees or so that your knees are slightly sloping down. Okay, so this is option one. I'm gonna give you a few more options and we're gonna play with uh, opportunities to do all different options. Okay, so there's like one-legged kneeling or even kind of one-legged Sukhasana, right? So you have these options so that when you're sitting in meditation, your foot starts to fall asleep. Don't be afraid to move, okay? We can get into kneeling, either knees together, right? You can sit on a bolster, you can sit on your heels. You could take heels wider, knees together. Here's a different option there. So find something that works for you and we'll play with it in our first round. Okay, so the meditation that we're gonna do today, this is called Tonglen meditation. So Tonglen meditation is a Buddhist uh, meditation practice and it's a process of giving and receiving using the breath. So the idea of this process is that your inhales are taking suffering and bringing it into the heart of you and that within yourself, you can imagine like your heart or your center, whatever you want to visualize, is like a furnace and it can incinerate the suffering and transform it so that when you exhale, you're sending out compassion. You're sending out understanding, understanding of love, whatever you feel like somebody or something needs. Okay, so we're going to close your eyes. Rest your hands somewhere that's comfortable. Roll your shoulders back and behind. And just first find a steady rhythm to your breath. So just a nice, easy, full inhale. And just a gentle exhale. So I want you to visualize someone in your life who is struggling with something, who is suffering. Someone who could use a little more empathy and compassion. And as you start to take in your inhales in this intentional way, you're gonna breathe in their suffering, their struggle, their depression, their anxiety, whatever is causing whatever negative feelings in them. Allow for that inhale to fully come into the body there's a little pause at the top of your inhale, and then as you exhale, transform it. Send it back out. Compassion, love, understanding, witnessing.
And as you take in this breath, imagine that at the heart of you, at the center of you, that's bright white light. Burning whatever it is that you need to get rid of. And allowing it to come back out. And as you put your focus on this person, what is it that they're suffering from? What is it that they're holding on to that they need help letting go? Take five more deep breaths in. Allow the exhales to be soft and gentle as you release compassion back out. And gently start to flutter the eyes open. So feel free to change up how you're sitting and get yourself comfortable again. So the beauty of this Tonglen practice is that it's not just for people outside of yourself. So you can certainly do this for yourself as well. When you're going through a hard time, you're struggling with something, you can bring in your own suffering. You have the power within yourself to transform it back out. You can also place this energy on 
somebody who is causing you suffering, right? So somebody who's maybe is not your favorite person in the world, and that this practice can also give you a centered focus, right? So I always feel like when I'm in kind of a conundrum in a relationship or a friendship, and you start to feel helpless, like, ah, there's nothing I can do to change their mind. There's nothing that I can do to make them, you know, be a better person to me or, or for whatever that example is. But that this practice of taking in their suffering, because something is going on in somebody else if they are turning around and being a jerk to you or to other people, that you can take in their suffering and transform it back to them. In that way, when they have this energy coming toward them, right? this energy of compassion and love, that they hopefully will be able to take that in, that they know that they are also being heard or seen, whether they know it directly or just that it's out there. And that certainly can be beneficial to everyone else as well. So we're going to go a second round. And you're going to try to think of somebody who maybe is not your favorite person in the world and see if you can use the same practice for them, okay? So get settled back in. This time I'm gonna offer a little use of hands. So you're gonna rub your palms together. You're gonna get some heat growing between your palms. And then put one hand over your heart, one over the belly, and you'll start to feel warmth of your hands against your body. Okay, center your breath here. Draw on your inhale. Let your breath transform it. Send it back out of your exhale.
take about five more breaths. We'll gently flutter the eyes open and release the hands. So I tend to be a pretty type A person. So for me, Tongva meditation gives me something to do. <laughs> it gives me a centered focus. It gives me a feeling of I'm doing something, a productiveness in times when I'm feeling helpless. Um, this can also be used, I do this when I'm reading the news. There's not a lot of fun news <laughs> around the world. And that when you hear about those, you know, soccer kids that were trapped in a cave, when you're thinking about, um, you know, you're seeing news of floods that are destroying homes and people are, you know, getting hurt and killed in Japan. They're on the other side of the world, but I can still do something, that I can use my breath to take in their suffering and to offer something back out. So in that way, it's, it's very powerful in that you have something that you can do in as simple as a few breaths. Even if it's at, you know, you're at a red light and you're just waiting and you hear something come up on the radio and you're like, I'm gonna use my breath. It doesn't always have to be in a meditative seat in a quiet space you know, meditation can be done anywhere at any time. It doesn't have to be a certain amount of time, you know, 10 breaths. It's like 30-ish seconds. If it's enough to turn something around mentally for you, emotionally for you, even physically to be able to feel like you're letting go of a burden in your life, this is where meditation is most helpful, especially for Tonglu meditation. It gives you that place where you can start or maybe feel like, ooh, meditation seems very like too woo-woo, too much right now. It feels like I need to have like a cleared space and a cleared mind to do it. This is a great one to bring in any time that you feel that heaviness, that you feel like you wanna let go of the breath a little, okay? All right. So I've got a couple more readings that I have flagged and I'm telling you, this is, these two yamas, like, this is where I really geek out. Because like I said, those first, first three yamas, ahimsa, asteya, satya, those are like things that you are taught when you're a child. They rarely talk about brahmacharya kind of stuff when you're a kid, right? You have to learn that one over time. Moderation on excess comes over time. Okay. All right, so brahmacharya, moderation. Uh, it needs to be done with courage. So acting under the erroneous assumption that we are imperfect, we reach outside ourselves to create balance to end our suffering. Naturally, this is unsuccessful, so we redouble our efforts and demand even more. 
All our effort, all our striving, merely worsens our situation and deepens our conviction that we are somehow flawed. Caught up in this cycle of chronic suffering and misguided attempts to relieve our pain, we spend our days out of balance and in conflict with ourselves. When you are stuck in a hole, stop digging. Brahmacharya concerns the first step, summoning the courage to step away from the downward spiral. We discover that there is a power in non-doing. Whew, okay, so let's unpack this a little bit, right? When you're stuck in a hole, stop digging. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've been guilty of like, something's not working, so I'm just gonna like try extra hard to keep making it work. And what have you done? You've wasted your energy, you've wasted your time, and you're now suffering even more. Uh, so when you start to find a moment where you go, this is miserable, <laughs> something's not working. There's power in undoing, non-doing. Don't do it anymore. If it's not working, don't do it anymore. If it's causing you suffering, stop. Maybe just stop enough that you can analyze what's going on, to just to look at it, just to observe it. Right? Sometimes we do this in our yoga practice, where we think, okay, the teacher just said, bend your knee a little more. And what sometimes happens, especially when I see with newer students, is that they hear, bend the knee, and they go, whoa, and that knee bends like they've never bent that knee before, right? Like, ugh, to the extreme. Well, now you've pushed it beyond. And in those cases, it's like, maybe you don't even need to take that from the teacher. Maybe that direction wasn't really meant to help you. So you can even take the cues that you're hearing in class, out in life, direction from your boss that you know is not right. <laughs> you don't have to take everything as it is given. We have brains, we can use them. So when you hear something, when you're taking something instead of just going straight into it and doing it the type A way, right? We're just gonna like, we're gonna just do it at full force. Can you do it in a way that feels like balance and moderation for what is right for you? So I always tell my, my students that Whatever I offer you guys in class, you don't have to do it. Change it up how you need to. If you have an injury, you know, don't push beyond it. If something isn't working for you, change it up. Come out of it, reassess, come back into it, maybe in a different way and see if that fits better. So there's a lot of work that we can do from the standpoint of uh, not feeling like we need to impress, right? Some of this also goes back to what we talked about last week about the truthfulness in how we practice and behave. Are we doing this for somebody else? Are we doing this for some kind of falsehood that's on the outside? And if that's the case, when we realize that we're doing something in a way that doesn't feel truthful to what needs to be done, do we have the courage to not do it and instead reassess, try something different, or change how we do it, right? So this is a big lesson for us in how we approach all the different behaviors of our lives. That we can do them in a way that feels truthful, right? We're starting to bring that satya back into play. Uh, we're doing it not in a way that feels like hoarding, that we're holding on to it for no other reason than because we don't know how to relinquish it. And when we can get to a place where we feel like, okay, I'm doing this in a, in a way that meets me the best, and it feels like I'm, directing my energy in a, an effective way, that I'm not just kind of blowing it out, 
or that I'm just holding on to my energy and hoarding it and not ready to use it. It's finding that balance and it's gonna be a testing ground. We, we aren't always on this middle path, right? Our path is probably a little more up and down. What we're trying not to do is go right? Be on a roller coaster. That's exciting for like a two minute ride. It's not exciting for life. If you're always on a roller coaster, you're gonna, you're gonna fry out really fast. Okay, so I got more good stuff for you. By the way, if you are looking for this book, this is called Meditations from the Mat by Rolf Gates, R-O-L-F-G-A-T-E-S, Gates. Uh, and these are like little, he's got 365 little essays and they're meant to be read like daily or you can binge read like how I do. All right. Does anybody have questions about brahmacharya? It's a thick one. There's a lot of different aspects to it. I feel like it's one of those 20-sided dice, right, that are used like in, I'm going to nerd out on like Dungeons and Dragons, right? Like there's so many facets to it. Okay. So parigraha. The energy we expend defending unhealthy attachments could be spent making the world a better place. Attachments to our thoughts is as wasteful as our attachment to political ideology, to relationships, or to our piles of stuff. Attachment to our thoughts. Right. Uh, so we're in a very interesting political time right now. Right. So I'm sure all of you are probably like, oh, God, Facebook is like the worst place to be because everybody has suddenly go, and now you have sides. And because of our attachments as human beings, we're like, I'm going to put a stake in this, and I'm going to die by this ideology. And the other side goes, well, I'm going to die by this ideology, too. There's no middle ground. We've become so attached to our extremes that we haven't figured out how to come into the middle. And at the end of the day, uh, we're all just trying to live, right? We, just, we want clean water. We need food. We need shelter. We need clothing. We need love and compassion. Uh, and so a parigraha is starting to show where those extreme ends are happening, where we are clinging and grasping. And it happens with our thoughts just as much as it happens with our stuff. And in those ways, as you start to go, okay, I'm thinking about my home. I'm thinking about how I've had a, a bad conversation with somebody. I'm thinking about certain things that have cause bits of suffering in my life, are those coming back to attachments? Are those coming back to hoarding tendencies? And I bet if you went home and you made a list, the list is long. We, this, is, this is natural behavior of, as humans, but at the same time, we can rise above this. We, we don't need to be held to our stuff, to our, our ideas, to our emotions even. We don't need to hold them so tightly. Has anybody watched Fight Club? You watch Fight Club? Okay, so this, that came out, what, in 1999? Something like that? Okay, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's one of my favorite movies. And the first time I watched it, it was so different, right, from other movies that had come out. And the uh, philosophy, if you can call it that, is actually very Eastern philosophy, right? That idea of letting go. So Edward Norton's character, did he ever have a name in the movie? Tyler Durden? No, that was Brad Pitt's character. Well, they were the same. Right. 
But I don't know if they ever named, okay, so we're just gonna, I'm gonna just call him Edward Norton's character. So Edward Norton's character, right? He has this Ikea catalog and he's filling his home with Ikea furniture, right? And there's that scene where he's visualizing in his home and he's on the phone with the, the catalog people. You know, I want this weird Swedish table. Yeah, and how much does this cost? And then Tyler Durden, or it was Tyler Durden who blew up his apartment, right? So suddenly, pfft, everything's blown out and he's like, my stuff, my stuff, my beautiful apartment that I'd I'd spent so much time like cultivating and making it perfect and putting the right furniture in. And that whole, like, you know, the journey that happens after that forced letting go was freedom. And so the more I dug into that movie, and I've, I've, I'm about halfway through the book, uh, this is all parts of Eastern philosophy. Right? It's that idea that he had these strong attachments and that he couldn't let go of them himself. That this other part of his brain, Tyler Durden, the split personality, had to come in and blow it up for him. And suddenly he was free. So again, not taking it to the extreme. I'm not telling you guys to go blow up your homes. Right? Don't, don't destroy your lives. Do not write that down. <laughs> uh, it doesn't have to be to the extreme of you have to give all your stuff away to goodwill, right? To, to become a monk or become homeless or become, it doesn't have to be to that extreme, but just that idea of when you hold on so tightly to certain attachments that are causing you suffering, right? I think Tyler Durden said, you know, you, you spend your whole life trying to make this, this place so perfect and it's just furniture, right? At the end of the day, it's just furniture. But you can release it so suddenly you, you're free. You have space. You have room. You have room for whatever it is. New ideas, new way of living, right? And again, we don't have to take it to the extreme of what they did in the movie. I'm not calling for anarchy or blowing up of like bank buildings. But we can take some lessons from that. That Aparigraha is telling us that we don't need to spend our energy on unhealthy attachments so that we can spend our energy instead on making the world a better place. That's pretty radical, at least to Western society, right? We're not often told that. And I used to work in advertising, so I did a lot of consumer research. And I kind of always felt bad working in that industry because that industry was so much about, like, how do you get to know people to make them want to buy? <laughs> so for me, I've always had this, like, rift in my own philosophy uh, and what I had to do for my job. Um, and so when I finally left that industry, suddenly my attachments to needing to build brands and to like cultivate things a certain way, I was like, I feel free. I don't have that burden anymore. I don't feel that attachment. I don't feel that weighing down on me. Okay. All right. As long as I was angry with anyone, I harbored anger and I was therefore an angry person. Reflecting on this, I was quickly able to come up with a list of resentments that were many years old. I had written about these resentments, taken responsibility for them, talked of them in therapy, but I had never forgiven the individuals in question. Without the cleansing decision to forgive, I continued to be resentful and I continued to be angry. 
Many of my resentments were parigraha violations. I not only held on to these resentments, but cherished them. I hoarded them. Okay. So this already, for me, brings up all those times that I've held on to something against somebody for way too long. And they probably let that go years before I ever got to that point of letting go. But I hoarded them because it made me feel better to always feel angry. It made me feel like, ugh, putting something back out there. They deserved it, right? So we can even think back to those times. And again, and these are like the emotional holdings on me, the emotional attachments that we have of letting go of things that don't serve us anymore. And that's been a big lesson in yoga for me, is learning to release things that are weighing us down for no good reason. Right? It also teaches me as I move forward in my relationships that there's no need to hold on to those resentments and hang them over somebody's head. Remember that time that I did X, Y, and Z for you and you didn't feel grateful toward me? Let that go. <laughs> that ship has sailed. There's no reason to hold onto that boat and try to like pull it down with you, right? Uh, yoga to me is the most therapeutic way of processing my life. And Aparigraha is one of these big ones for me. So there's also that flip side of this letting go, which is not wanting something in the first place, not needing it so much that you change your life for it. So we can always take any of these yamas and kind of flip it on its head, right? Non-possessiveness, non-hoarding can go back to, did I need to hold on to it in the first place? So I kind of think of that not holding on to something in the first place. That's like preventative, right? That's, that's watching out for what you don't have to let go of later. Uh, so I've, I'm sure I shared the story in my vinyasa classes before. Um, my husband always gets mad, gets mad at me because I uh, pick up free stuff at conventions, at festivals, at wherever I go. Swag, I know. It's got a brand on it, but I could use Do we need a fifth water bottle, right? But is it a good water bottle? No, it really wasn't. Why did you pick it up? I don't know. Because I have a hoarding tendency, right? <laughs> Let's be truthful about how we are, what our behavior is. And so last night we went to see a free movie uh, downtown at Republic Square Park. They were showing Isle of Dogs, and it was Amazon Treasure Truck. So I'm like, yeah, Amazon Treasure Truck is coming. Oh, man, there's going to be so much like free stuff there. And now my rule is, if I take something that's out there for free, whether it's branded or whatever, that I have to use it, <laughs> that it has to be usable in the time that I pick it up so that I don't end up with five water bottles with some brand name of something I don't know, I don't care about. What does it do? I don't know. Maybe it's a pharmaceutical. It's a free water bottle. Right? <laughs> or I don't pick up like 50,000 pens. Right? You don't walk away with I don't know, what other kind of like crappy swag do you pick up? Those credit card things you put in the back of your Yeah, I think I've picked up five of those. I've, I've never, never used, used one. Yeah. I never used one. I've never stuck it on the back of my phone. 
Uh, and so then I have to teach my kids this because they're like, free stuff. I'm like, okay, kids. I wish somebody had told me this when I was younger. Don't pick up everything that's free because you know what happens when we get home? It clutters the house. And then mommy has to yell at you to clean up your crap. Right? Preventative. Now we can take this, flip it on its head and be preventative so that we don't end up in a place where we are buried by our stuff. Right, preventative even in our emotional relationships with other people so that we don't have this baggage that happens later. So this, these two yamas are like, these are life-changing for me. That when you can start to flip things on their head and flip them around in a way that you go, oh, when I really look at myself, my tendencies, my behaviors, what I'm doing that I think is gonna bring me joy, most of the time when I reflect back on those, they didn't bring me any joy at all. Maybe for the two seconds where I'm like, look, I got a water bottle. <laughs> and then you go home and you have five years of suffering because your husband goes, we need to get rid of these water bottles. We need to clean out the pantry. Things are falling off the shelf. Okay, fine, I won't pick up any more water bottles. Okay, so, all right. Anything you guys want to ask, discuss? Questions about any of this? I kind of wonder what kind of good swag was at the Amazon service truck. Popcorn. So we picked up popcorn. So I, I'm now okay with consumables yeah. because you consume it and then you're done. And then we always try to recycle the packaging as best we can. Uh, they have um, people doing uh, Japanese calligraphy, which at first I thought was really cool. And we stood in line for about 20 minutes. And I thought, okay, I took Japanese in college. So I was like, oh, maybe they can write my kids' names in katakana, which... Uh, which is their alphabet for like foreign words. And then the lady, she was like, I'm gonna do it in kanji, which are the, the Chinese characters that they use in Japanese as well. And I told her my kids' names, Brody and Grant. And I think she just picked three words. One, one was brave, because she was like, Brody, brave. And, and so she wrote brave, and I don't know what she wrote for the other two characters. I'll probably have to ask my mom to look at it and tell me what the Chinese characters mean. But then I went home and I was like, what are we going to do with this? I don't even know which words she wrote on there. <laughs> and it's going to be probably something I'm going to have to recycle. I probably shouldn't have stood in line. My kid didn't even enjoy it because he was like, I don't care, you know? Uh, we did pick up water bottles, but they were to drink. <laughs> but they were like bottles of water, not like branded water bottles. Yeah, and we picked up a poster, so minimal minimal materialistic stuff that we went home with. Okay, all right, we've been sitting for a while, so let's stand up. <sighs> all right, just shake it out a little. Roll through your shoulders. Okay, we're gonna take a little turn side to side. We'll do a little bit more relaxed stuff in a moment, but for now. Let's get some release. All right. All right, inhale, take your arms up. And grab your left wrist with your right hand. Let's take it up and over to the right. Get a nice good stretch to the left side of your body. Relax the shoulders. Try to even out the weight in your feet. Okay, take two deep breaths in. One more inhale. Good, inhale back through center. Let's switch your hands. Grab your right wrist with your left hand up and over to the left. 
two breaths here. Inhale back through center, release the arms. You're going to take your feet a little bit wider, probably to like the edges of your mat. Take your hands to your waist, take an inhale, get tall. Exhale, bend the knees generously, let your belly hang forward and down, let your head drop, we'll release the arms. Grab opposite elbows here, and we're just going to sway side to side from the low back. So think like pendulum kind of swing, elephant trunk kind of swing. Maybe you shake your head, no, here, nod your head, yes, let your neck get nice and relaxed and loose. Release the hands. You're going to slowly roll yourself back up to stand. Draw those shoulders up toward the ears. Pull them back behind. Relax them down. Then we're going to heel toe our feet together into Tadasana. Big toes together, maybe like an inch or so between the heels. Shoulders are relaxed down. Palms forward and close your eyes here. Feel the weight in your feet. Notice if you're leaning into the toes or back into the heels and try to bring that into the center of the foot. Notice if you tend to lean on the outer edges of your feet or more on the arch side and try to bring it into center there. Okay, we're going to take some lion's breath here. So take a nice long inhale through your nose. Open your mouth, mouth tongue out. Again, inhale. Three more times. Two more. One more. Good. Back to a normal breath. In through your nose. Out the nose. Two more breaths here. Okay. Eyes soft or closed. We'll inhale, reach the arms up. Exhale, you'll fold forward and down. Put the hands on the floor. You're going to heel till your feet out wider. We're going to come into Malasana squat. So we have props nearby if you need something under your seat or under your heels. We'll bring the elbows into the insides of the thighs, palms together. So we're going to work into some horse lips. So the only way you can get your lips to flutter is you have to soften the cheeks and soften the jaw. Right? So nice long inhale. Get those lips moving. Three more times. Back to a normal breath in through the nose. 
out the nose. And release your left hand on the inside of your leg all the way to the floor. Take your right arm up to the sky. And you can either stay here open, or you can take this top arm and wrap it behind the low back for a half bind. If you want to work it into a full bind, you're welcome to take this left arm back behind. And don't get attached to whether you can grab the fingers or not. Be where you are, how you are for this moment. Know that it'll change tomorrow. Know that it might change later today. Two more breaths. I'm going to come back in through center. Take a few breaths here in neutral. Go to the other side, right hand down, left arm up, maybe working a half bind, maybe working a full bind. Notice how one side might be different from the other. Two more breaths here. Come back in through center. And let's find a seat. Maybe grab your two blocks. Maybe keep a bolster nearby. We're going to take an easy forward fold. Legs out to about a 90. And you're going to create a little perch, whether you want it super high whether you want it a little lower. We're going to use this. You can either do arms, just let the head drop. You can use this as a little perch for your head. However you want to work it. Get yourself comfortable. Use as much as you need if you need something a little higher and a little softer. Right. If you fall asleep, that's okay. I'll wake you up as soon as we start snoring. We're going to spend like a few minutes here, just allowing things to release in the back body. Soften the knees. They don't have to be fully straight. Soften through the feet. Notice how things are feeling along your spine, into the neck. There's the props here for any amount of support that you need. See if you can slow the breath down. Nice long inhales. Easy exhales. What can you let go on each breath? Whether it's something physical in the body that's holding tight, 
something emotional you've been holding on to. Maybe it's a habit you're ready to let go of. yourself about 10 more breaths here. Lengthen out your inhale equal to the length of your exhale. One more deep breath in. And gently press yourself back up. back to your breath. And before we get moving out of this posture, just a few questions 
as you move forward and how you can start to deepen the practice within brahmacharya and aparigraha. So how can we practice moderation and temperance in our thoughts, words, and deeds? When and where do you notice addictive cravings popping up? How much energy do you spend on unhealthy attachments? And how can we learn to say goodbye to make room for something better? So the five yamas are not meant to be like a stern parent, right? Telling you not to do things that are fun. (laughs) Instead, these yamas help to lighten our load to free us from the things that tend to bring us down, to bring suffering into our lives, and to say it's okay to not do those things. Ahimsa tells us we don't need to have violent thoughts toward ourselves or toward others. We're taking that into behaviors. Satya gives us permission to not have to lie to ourselves, to find the truth within us. Asteya tells us to be more mindful of when we are taking things so that we don't steal, whether that's somebody's time, energy, or physical items. Brahmacharya asks us to stay in the middle way to not go to the extreme ends. And Aparigraha teaches us to let go, let go of things that we don't need, things that are weighing us down, things that are causing us to be burdened. So let's bring the palms together at heart center. And we're going to seal our practice with a single om. First, we'll take a full breath in through your nose. Full breath out of your mouth. Inhale to chant. Namaste. Thank you for listening to Finding Drishti podcast. I'll be back for a quick bite next week, continuing the discussion of Brahmacharya and Aparigraha. If you'd like to learn more about me or my teaching schedule in Austin, Texas, please visit findingdrishti.com.